Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Each week, we talk through a biblical passage or topic, offer some insight, and hope to point us to the Lord and His place in our lives. We also have interactive questions available for individual reflection or for small groups. Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. This week we will look at the second part of the Lost Son parable found in Luke chapter 15. As we know, this is the third in a series of parables, and we'll look at the second half or the story here. Uh, of the older brother in this parable, because usually the parable is mostly remembered as the story of the younger son and his restoration with his father. But the story does not end there. It continues on, and it tells us about the older brother and how his response was when he learned about how his younger brother had returned and was restored and how uh, that restoration was followed by a huge party. The parable tells us the father had two sons, and the focus now shifts to the older son. Our text is Luke 15, chapter 15, verse 25 through 32, and I'll begin reading verses 25 through 27. Now, the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. So we see the text beginning with the word now, indicating a break in the story, a change here, a new scene. And we see the older son returning from the field. And notice he was in the field. He returns to the house from the field, you know, just like his younger brother returned home, leaving the fields of the Gentile and where the pigs were being fed. And as he came and he drew near to the house, our text says, and the same verb here is he drew near, uh, it is used of the sinners in verse 1 of chapter 15, which uh, the scene which started all of these parables to begin with. Remember, Jesus was having dinner, was having food, table fellowship with sinners and tax collectors, and it says that they drew near to Jesus. So we see the same verb being used, and the older brother has drawn near. And uh, imagine, you know, if we had a movie that was uh, depicting our scene here. We had the movie of the prodigal, the parable, and so forth. Imagine the movie. We have this house. It's jamming. There's music. It's loud. It's celebrating. People are happy. Everyone's there. And then the scene shifts. We have solemn music as we see now the older brother arrive, like cold wind coming across the scene. And he came and he heard music and dancing. Now, this would probably involve hired musicians of some sort now at this party. And uh, 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 he can hear hear this. It's very predominant. So he called the servant and said, what's going on? And he's noticed unnaturally suspicious. What's going on? What's with this joyous impulse? You see, Pharisees and those like them, they don't really understand this kind of fellowship and joy. They understand high and pious airs. They understand performance-driven behavior. They understand tight conduct and proper behavior 
being responsible, and they understand control and sin management. But they do not understand spontaneous joy. Boy, that seems risky, hard to manage, even shameful. And then the servant tells him, your brother has come. Just imagine the chill working up and down the spine of the older brother at the reminder of his younger brother and how the father has received him and has now killed the fatted calf. And so quickly the older brother figures it all out. Now we could have two scenarios. The first scenario would be the better one where he figures it out. He sees that, uh, you know, he, he realizes how the father spoke often of the younger son and he was hoping that he would return and day after day was anticipating that and the older son would likewise share these sentiments because he would share the heart of his father so he now would be happy and join the party or there's another scenario where he doesn't share the same heart as his father their relationship wasn't good in that sense and he's not interested at all in his younger brother in fact he then becomes angry he himself is in a sense in a far country far country a far country that's full of religion and performance well, the text goes on to say he then became angered. As verse 28 says, he, uh, uh, he was angry. And literally, it's he became angry and he would not go in. And therefore, we'll see his father came out and pleaded with him. So he became angry. He wouldn't go in. And again, this implies this happened quickly, like boom, he's angry. Just like his brother who very quickly gathered his things together and left for the far country. We see this uh, this this. Uh, older brother instead of spewing out his money and wealth uh he's spewing out accusations and distortions and complaints and he won't go in and this is a big cultural no-no speaking of honor and shame this is a way of shaming the father once again the father is being shamed this time by the second son the older brother this is totally bringing shame and dishonor upon his father right in front of the community the younger son left and now the older son refuses to enter and he's doing so because his complaint is this is not fair. He too is characterized by impulsiveness then and irrational behavior. Like his younger brother, he's going to humiliate the father. This, the fact is as joy and resentment cannot coexist. You know, this scene kind of was very similar as I brought it out on a podcast some time back about where David and his uh, wife, Michael, and David had um, been decided to move the tabernacle that had been uh, displaced because of the Philistines and such. And instead of going back to its normal place, he's going to bring it to Jerusalem. And it's going to be called the Tabernacle of David. It'll last there for about 20 years before everything is restored. So for that brief period of time of 20 years, the, the Tabernacle is in Jerusalem. And as it's coming to Jerusalem, David now was very sure that God was behind this and had said yes to this, so to speak. So he's full of joy. And there was a scene of great joy. And there's music and dancing as they're bringing Bringing in the tabernacle, and David is carrying on in the street. It's the text member says he was leaping and dancing with spontaneous joy, and many others had joined him. And there was fellowship and worship. And his wife, Michael, was not part of that, but she was in Jerusalem, and she sees it from her window, and she looks down on this and despises David. She doesn't get it. She doesn't understand at all the joy and the spontaneity there. She thinks it's foolishness. She thinks David is excessive. It's prodigal. So this is the same now with the older brother standing outside the house with all the music and dancing and celebration going on. And he doesn't get it. And he's actually offended by it. So the father came out to him and pleaded with him. 
So for the second time in the day, the father leaves the home, faces public humiliation, and shows unbelievable love. Does that sound familiar? Again, remember Philippians 2, 5 and 9. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us as he came to our earth. And there he showed unbelievable love by dying for us, being humbled to the death on the cross. The word is the father pleaded, and it means to ask to come to be present where the speaker is. In other words, a calling to one side. And, you know, this conversation is not private. An audience is watching this. You know, this is a cultural crime. It's an awkward moment. Surely there music pauses and eyes turn outside. You know, when you're at a big wedding, can you imagine a big wedding and, and uh, someone has stomped out and won't come in? You know, maybe the brother of the groom or something, and the father then goes out to try to talk to him, and everyone can see looking out the window in the parking lot, and there they are. It's awkward. And it's shaming the father. And the son is publicly disgracing his father. And yet he is faced in return with nothing but grace. The older brother, though, won't be stunned by that grace. He is not moved by the love of the father that will be shown him. We won't see like the younger brother where there's a willingness to be found. He doesn't accept who the what the father is doing here. Instead, he has a continued lack of recognition of the father and his love and his goodness. Sure reminds me of Romans 1 and uh, verse 21 after um, uh, we, when he's explaining how really human, humankind has kind of fallen uh, farther and farther away from the Father. It says, because although they knew God, Romans one twenty one, Paul writes, when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. And what a beautiful picture a a, a, a description, rather, of the older brother. He does not want to recognize, he doesn't fully recognize or see the value and who his father is or what's going on there. And without that relationship, he's not thankful. And he has complaining thoughts, and his foolish heart is darkened. So he complains. Notice in verse 29 and verse 30, he answered to the father who came out and pleaded with him. He answered and said, Lo, these many years, Lo, by the way, is like, look, Look, these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. So he's upset, and he is now uh, answering to his father, and he publicly insults his father as he makes his complaint. First, he doesn't, uh, he just says, look, and he doesn't even give him a, a, a title. So this is disrespect right there. The father, though, this is an answer to the father's call. He calls him, will you come in? And the father has pleaded with him, and this is the answer. Look, and this is in the imperative. So just like the younger brother with his imperative demands, give me my inheritance. Now the older brother says, look. Can you just see him like pointing his finger at his father? Look. And it's a defiant and insolent lack of respect way of talking to his father. And he wants him to observe something. Observe what? Observe me. Look what I have done for you. I have served you. And I've been keeping track. It's been many years. Father to him seems to be merely a master, not a father. And then he goes on and says, I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. 
self-deception is never pretty yet there shows here then that he just does not have this relationship aspect with his father he performed performance and his duty over relationship and so now he sees you never gave me a young goat his complaint you see the problem here it's the father he's the one who's been favor has favoritism and has been unfair i did good the older brother is saying where's my goody he does bad and he gets a party <laughs> and he says i've never been able to make merry with my friends but wait a minute aren't his friends the father's friends aren't his friends in the house aren't his friends also like his family and such extended well apparently they are not the same friends uh, why does the younger brother seem to have so many friends at that moment well because he's returned and he's now again in good standing with his father so he's in good standing with the community well it seems like the older brother shares the same desire the younger brother once had he wants to celebrate and cut loose but apart from the family or apart from the community his friends appear to be different at any rate he says to his father as soon as this son of yours came again revealing the break in the family he doesn't even refer to him as a brother another insult and remember this is pretty public people can hear this the uh it's just like the pharisees perhaps standing there actually in real time listening to the story of jesus here remember they too refused to accept the sinners and the tax collectors as their brothers or as their fellow jews as soon as this son of yours come and he devoured your livelihood with harlots now we know the older brother doesn't know this the text never reveals anything like this doesn't it indicate it this is an accusation here with no evidence more likely this is the desire of his heart what he would do he's projecting onto the younger brother what he would do and he has no evidence as he makes this blanket statement boy i bet there was many a night where the older brother was falling off to sleep fantasizing his own days of freedom if only he could and then he accuses the father now you've killed the fatted calf for him our text says father you are the problem you're playing favorites you're unfair you're unappreciative of all that i've done i have a legitimate complaint here the older son is suffering from perfectionism he's duty bound he does and he does right and he's good but perfectionism doesn't honor god perfectionism is about us perfectionism is about our control perfectionism is not relationship so he has the wrong view here about a lot of things and his thinking is goofed up he has the wrong view toward himself toward his brother toward sin and toward his father toward himself he is full of pride i'm the good one the worker bee the diligent one you know the fact is all of us if we're honest we're about three bad days in a row away from becoming a tabloid headline and many of us are already on day two so he's got a wrong view of himself he's got a wrong view of his brother the brother oh he's the bad one he's totally unworthy and rotten and i'm way better he has a wrong view towards sin sin to him is having fun in the sun and self-indulgence and getting away with it the older son avoids sin but he thirsts for it himself thinking of his phrase about the harlots you see that's an immature view of sin you could say you're thinking that sin is just having fun getting away with stuff but proverbs 13 15 reminds us the way of a transgressor is hard and the younger brother his way may have been momentarily yay but then it was very hard 
and he was literally not even going to survive. And then the young, the older brother has a wrong view of his brother. We saw of himself, um, of his brother of sin, but now, I'm sorry, of his father. He sees his father as the problem. He's weak. He's playing favorites. He's shameful. So this older brother, his thinking is all goofed up. Now, you could illustrate with a married couple. Let's say that we have the wife is unhappy and eventually says she wants a divorce. And he defends himself. Look, I have worked. I have earned. I've supported you. I've never hit you. I've bought you clothes. I'm providing appliances. We go places together. There's no other woman, which all those things are good. But it was all without love without any internal affection. So it's cold and it's empty and it's lacking relationship. That's the essence of legalism, meeting God's expectations for moral behavior while at the same time being relationally alienated from him. See, love and relationship then are not really at home in that setting. Instead, welcome to misery. Well, the Pharisees, they can hear this and they're able to totally relate to the story now. Yes, absolutely, they're saying. This son is wise. He's putting his father in his place. He's a fool, that father. This this older brother, he's the dutiful one. He's maintaining the farm. He's working hard. He's in the fields. He's doing what is right. Of course he should be angry with this foolish father. The fatted calf, the Boy, he has every right. The father is the problem here. This is all wrong what the father's doing. We don't like the father at all. So the Pharisees might be saying. So we go to the last two verses of our parable where the father then speaks in return to the son, the older brother. He says to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. The father does not defend himself with point-by-point arguments. The father bypasses all the junk and false accusations the older son had just said and has done. The father is all about relationship. This is the basis for everything he's going to try to convince the older brother of. He says, son, He calls him son. You are always with me. We are family. And all that is mine is yours. In part, this is just horizontal because the division of the property has already taken place. He's already granted them their inheritance early. Um, But what he's saying is the, the current celebration that's going on in that house doesn't represent any threat to the older brother or his inheritance or his standing. Son, everything has been settled. You are always with me. All that I have is yours. This is like a handshake of love. But unlike the younger brother, there is no response. The father explains then in verse 32, it was right that we should make merry and be glad. This is fitting, entirely appropriate. Because your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Notice he calls him the older brother, son, in verse 31, and he refers to the other as your brother, both indicating that they are family, they have status, they are children in the family. And so the explanation the father is giving centers on relationship. And he was lost and is found. That statement connects clearly this to the other two parables in Luke 15 of the 99 and the one, that's one sheep that was lost and the one coin. So the boy is offered now, a opportunity to respond. 
that he is family or that this is where he belongs. But we know he's confused and struggling, the older brother here, with all of this. Clearly, he's angry. In fact, one commentator describes how the older son must have been reasoning. It's a very good quote. It's a little lengthy, but uh, indulge me if you would. He said, as if he's speaking for the older brother, embrace a pig manure covered rebel whose sole motivation for coming home is to reap yet something else for himself. That's ludicrous. Where's the sense in that? What does it say to that misbehaving son? What wrong impressions will others get about the father when they see such indiscriminate acceptance? What misunderstanding does it communicate about the importance of right behavior? What kind of wrong ideas will it cause other people to get about sin? How is that fair to all those who give their lives to doing right? And I know many of us sometimes think that just like that. <clears throat> about this story, um, trying to understand, isn't this really is kind of a raw deal for the older brother? Well, the cold commentator goes on and says this, the avalanche of objections will continue from this older brother, but it won't change the father in the slightest. He knows what he is doing and isn't affected in the least by our distorted sense of injustice. He just patiently smiles when we roll our religious eyes about the wrongness of it all. In these moments, when we see glaring and garish grace, we witness the nucleus of our God's heart and the reason for our own existence. And that reason is to be known and to be loved. Perhaps you will never see a more sacred moment of grace than when filth is absorbed into and absolved by unconditional acceptance. It's a very good quote. But the brother, as we see here, he's resisting this grace. He doesn't like it. He's not comfortable with it. He's face to face with his father who's appealing and pleading with him, but he's resenting him and he's angry with him and he's accusing him. You know, Jesus said to a different Pharisee as part of a different story in Luke chapter 7, where he said, the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. The father is saying, I have servants, but I want a son. And I found a son today, and now I'm looking for you. Well, the first part of the parable with the younger son, we know he returns and there's this embrace and there's restoration and that's good. How does the second part of the story end? What about this older brother? Does he return? Is there also going to be reconciliation? How does it end? And the story masterfully intersects with reality right here to the very scene that it is being told in. Jesus brings it right before them. See, the Pharisees, they're the older brother. They're the ones protesting and complaining, sinners being uh, restored. And so here they are hearing this, and the, the story ends. It's up to you how it ends, as if Jesus is saying. What will you do? This parable begins with a personal address. What man among you, Jesus said way back. Well, now this requires a personal answer. And they, the Pharisees, finally had to face their own complaint and choose how they would respond to God and his love for sinners. Some did change their mind, like Nicodemus, for example. But most, we know, did not. In fact, what did they ultimately do? They killed Jesus. They put him on a cross and crucified him. Well, the parable ends with an obvious implication of an open invitation for all to enter into this love, for all to respond to this grace. You know, you might be more like the younger son in your personality or life experience, or maybe you're more like the older brother. But we need to realize both sons have a problem. 
Both dishonored their father. Both did not understand the heart of the father. Both sinned against the father. Both were, re- were relationally dead to the father. Tim Keller on this parable wrote, You can run from God either by breaking his rules or by keeping them. The former says, God doesn't own me. And the latter says, God owes me. You see, the older brother is snared by his own standards and expectations, not his father's. And this performance, clipboard, and judgments hold him in bondage unknowingly. You see, both the younger and the older were consumed with life as they knew or wanted it, independent from the father relationally. The younger living excessively, credit cards maxed, materialism, he's short-sighted to who he was, what the father was. The older is living excessively as well in his duty-bound responsibilities, etc. He's short-sighted as well to who the father is. And they both come face to face with amazing grace, as we all have when we hear and read and are exposed to these kind of truths. Notice the story went from 100 to 10 to 2 and now down to 1 when we put the three parables together. What will you do, the one? Grace means freedom. Yeah, it's awesome. It's scary. It's a powerful freedom. It's an unconditional, undeserved love. And you know what? Grace can be abused. In fact, if it can't be abused, it's not grace. Just because freedom can be abused doesn't mean we shouldn't set people free, though. In fact, unfortunately, freedom looks like rebellion to those that are still in slavery. So though grace can be abused, grace cannot be weakened by anything a human being does or even disbelieves. So when we think of our parable coming to an end here, the second half of the two sons, we see that who is who in this? We see the summary of, uh, of the second half. The son, the, the older brother, he's the Pharisees. The father in the story, that's Jesus, that's God. The friends rejoicing are rejoicing in community, just like the other two parables. Those are friends of Jesus or friends of God. Why the search is the love of the Father. In fact, this case, it's specifically the Father came out and pleaded. Why the celebration? To honor the hero of the story and rejoice with him. And we're reminded that sinners are called as he came out and pleaded with them. But will there be joy? Will there be repentance? That's going to be individually decided one by one. It uh, reminds me of Romans 8, verses 5 through 7, where Paul says this, For those who live according to the flesh, or the sin nature, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded or dominated by the sin nature is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. You see in verse 5, it says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You see these two sons, we see one who has selfish independence, the younger one, excessive unrestraint, his mind was set on that. The older brother also has strong selfish duty and self-righteousness, and he's showing excessive restraint, and his mind is set on that. But both are relationally dead to the Father, as verse 6 says, to be carnally minded is death. They don't see, they're not connected, it's not wrought of the Spirit at all. 
But the father is there. He's patient and he's wooing and he's willing and he's ready. He wants them to come and enjoy him and understand and walk in this. The carnal mind is not one that will ever have that. But the carnal mind can be changed by love, by grace. When you're willing to be found, you're won over by his love. And you can stop now and even just consider that God does indeed love you. You know, this is how we get the older brother syndrome. A syndrome is a group of symptoms, and it's really easy to fall into this kind of thinking and pattern. Do good and then get goodies. If I work hard, obey the rules, do what I'm supposed to do, even at church and so forth, it's all going to turn out. I'm going to get that position, or I'm going to be recognized, or I'm going to gain some merit. It's all about getting, earning, having some benefits, which unfortunately starts with self and not really others or out of love. It is prone to judgment on those who are not doing so good, doing a lot of fruit inspecting, and it's void of relationship appreciation. The father's rejoicing, the younger brother's restored, but we don't see it that way. We don't have that same connection. We're not amazed, we're just del or delighted, we're just bugged. We don't really share the heart of the family when we're in this mindset. And it's lacking in true worship and love and devotion. You know, I think of Mary when she was uh, in John chapter 12 from a previous pod podcast. She was pouring out this ama amazing expensive oil on Jesus' feet, preparing his uh, body for burial. And others didn't understand it, were harsh with her, and Jesus said, leave her alone. She's preparing my body for burial. She had this unbelievable devotion and connection, <laughs> true worship, spontaneous even. You see, it's more about saving face than saving grace than we're, when we have the older brother syndrome. But how do we get out of that? Well, grace is always the solution. So we can be realizing grace is extravagant. It's amazing goodness and kindness. And it's even prodigal in its nature. It's just that it's excessive. It's unbelievable. It's overwhelming. So we end up under grace under a different syndrome, a fellowship syndrome, a found syndrome knowing we're loved syndrome that revels in grace and undeserved goodies revels when others even see and enjoy this grace how that honors the father it shows graciousness to others how can you not when we've been treated this way this syndrome values relationships starting with our relationship with the father and then outward from there and we're amazed by grace we love that embrace and spontaneous joy and worship flowing from the heart See, friends, the Christian life is not what you are doing or how you are progressing in performance or how you are measuring up to expectations or how much you know or how much you think you're growing, even putting it on a comparative chart. In fact, it's not about you at all. The Christian life is, well, it's Christ. It's his life. And therefore, it's learning to just respond to Jesus who loves you and lives in you and is with you all the time, and it's growing, as Peter says, in the grace and the knowledge of him. So it's just not complicated. A childlike faith is a delightful thing. So friends, it's not about the victorious Christian life as, as much as it is the, about the victorious Christ. And our calling isn't to impress Jesus with anything, but to rely on his everything and to know how he loves you. Two final questions. How can the older brother how can we call the older brother prodigal also? Because he's excessive or extravagant in his pride and his self-righteousness. It's way off the chart. 
And finally, where is the turning point in this whole story? You know, for some, we still might want to say it's when that younger son came to himself in the pigsty. Is that really the turning point? Is that where the spotlight goes? Or does it go to the, through the embrace where the father runs and meets that returning son? And there is the turning point of the story, when grace overwhelms this younger son. And now the second story is waiting for a response as well. The spotlight is on the father. The spotlight is on his love. The turning point is when he shows and demonstrates his love. And then when you believe, you just walk into that and you respond by faith. Have you never been saved? Note, he has been looking. He's looking. The Father will find you if you're willing to be found, friends. He desires a relationship with you as a father to a child, for you to be his son or his daughter. He doesn't want a servant, a slave, an employee. He wants a child. And it is possible. In fact, it's available for us, for anyone right now. Because of what Jesus has done and accomplished for us, he died on the cross. He died for you. He died for your sins. He's taken your shame. He's risen again. He is victorious and alive. That's where life is. And he offers you his life and a ticket for heaven, forgiveness and cleansing and eternal paradise where there will be no sorrow, no shame, no suffering forever. And it's free. It's by faith, by being persuaded and putting your trust and confidence in what he has done and provided. It's never by your works. It's never by your plan or your agenda or what you think you can accomplish. It's never a reward for dutiful work. It's all about him. It's always by grace. It's always by faith. And it's always free. And we just consent to be loved. Can you do that? Accept the embrace by responding to grace by faith. Yes, Lord. I know you love me, and Christ has demonstrated it, and I believe. So there is the good news. You can imagine yourself in those arms at any time, point in time. <clears throat> Are you already saved? It's the same thing, same way. I don't care what you did this morning or yesterday or last week. To know that there is fellowship and forgiveness and restoration for the already child, it's the same thing, freely available by grace. God wants to be enjoyed, and his grace makes that possible for you and for me. He does not want a servant, a slave, or an employee. He wants a son and a daughter, and that's you. If you're saved, that's already you. So now you just recognize, if you've gone astray, who you are, and respond again, knowing he's looking and willing and wants you. And you respond by faith to his unconditional grace and love. And you can have then abundant life. As Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and you may have it more abundantly. And walk in newness of life. Restore it again because at a point in time you can just embrace or put your faith in his embrace of you. By faith, you know. It's not by your works, not by your plans, not by turning over a new leaf, no promises or anything you do. Fellowship and cleansing in the Christian life is again consent to be loved or to be found. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for grace. It is indeed everything. Without it, we die eternally separated from you. So may you teach every listener to appreciate your grace more and more, that we may grow in the knowledge of you and your grace. And may we all realize that we can enjoy relationship with you at any time by faith. 
knowing Jesus has secured everything with his death and his resurrection, and then through him, every unbeliever that comes to you by faith will be found. And then knowing as well that even a believer who's been astray can come to you by faith and be restored and just realize that is your desire for all. We thank you for the simplicity and the beauty of pure, undeserved kindness and goodness. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you appreciate this podcast, you can help us out tremendously by rating it favorably on your podcast app. And feel free to recommend it to others. And also you can email any comments or even questions or things you might uh, want to discuss at all. Either you can uh, email us at coolhandgrace at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And until next time, remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope. Oh.